September 16, 1986. It's hard to believe it's been 35 years since we stepped off that bus at Fort Benning, Georgia. Wow. I'd give a shout out to all my brothers in arms. Last, Young, Lee, Vickers, and Doc. Especially you, Doc, for doing the podcast. Really appreciate it. Here's to another 35 years, guys. Happy anniversary. Love y'all. Miss y'all. Cold Steel. Four months later, January 1987, Stillwell Hall, Fort Ord, California. My first thought when I saw the new battalion walking in was, first of all, there's a bunch of them, and that they are so young. I'm only 19 years old myself. For a few days amidst the constant clacking and clicking of typewriters, staplers, shouted orders, long lines, hurry up and wait, and the ever-present dull thudding roar of the Pacific Ocean just outside, wearing away the cliff wall that Stillwell Hall was built on, it's not there anymore. That is where I met all of you guys, including Kenny Woods, from Washington Courthouse, Ohio, who you heard doing the introduction. Welcome to Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War. In the late 1980s, a group of young men who grew up without computers, cell phones, and social media will help end the Cold War. This is not based on a true story. This is a true story. Welcome to episode six of Light Fighters, the guys and the gear. Before we get started again, I want to thank those of you kind enough to spend some time with me on the phone getting dates and names straight. I want to thank Dan Palumbo. He's put me in contact with Colonel Bob Harkins, who's going to join us on an upcoming episode to talk about his perspective at the time as a senior officer on the strategic and tactical importance of the light infantry circa the closing years of the Cold War. Colonel Harkins basically wrote the tactical manual for light infantry that we all followed when we were out in the field. I also spoke to Lance Crawford about an upcoming show that we're going to talk about our weekends, you know, in San Jose and elsewhere, you know, in Garrison. We had pretty much Monday through Friday gigs, and that's going to be a fun one. It w- a lot of it was training, but it wasn't all training. We did get to enjoy the area there in Monterey and the surrounding areas. And this very week, I reconnected with one of my very, very best friends from the years at Fort Ord, Eric with a K. I'd looked for him, but I'd been misspelling his first name. Eric with a K. Rothschild. That was our college guy from Pennsylvania who was on that two-year enlistment as a cook, and he was selected by the guys in Alpha Company to be the only guy from the cafeteria, the only cook to join us on the Australia deployment. So he's going to be doing that episode with myself and Sergeant Doyle Kruger, and it's just great talking to him and to all of you, to all of you. Thank you so much. All right. Back to Stillwell Hall, Fort Ord, California, January 1987. My memory was that we were working on a federal holiday. It was Martin Luther King Day, a Monday, uh, that 1987. It was either first or second year that MLK Day was being celebrated as a national federal holiday. But as we were often reminded when we were in the Army, you're in the Army every day 
of the year. There was an administrative company there helping with the in-processing, the seventh PSC personnel. I think it was personnel and supply company. Uh, they were doing everything. They were the ones with the typewriters and, you know, doing the admin. And it's basically like new employee orientation, if, if you want to think about it that way. All paper-based no computers, no technology, uh, no power strips, no PowerPoint, uh, all paper-based, you know, your medical exams, there was dental. I remember just giving out hundreds and hundreds of inoculations, you know, bevel up, inject, aspirate, inject, pull it out, cotton, see you later. Uh, you're in, in the infantry, you don't need a Band-Aid, move on, right? Move on, light fighter, Ev everything. I don't remember how long it took. My, my memory was it was a couple of days, and we were talking about three or 400 guys that are here on the edge of America, on the Pacific Ocean, getting in process to the 7th Infantry Division Light. And of course, the next thing we start getting organized into our companies, and really for the first time since I arrived at Fort, Fort Ord, since I went to Light Leaders Course, since my Christmas leave, starting to figure out what this whole Army thing is going to look like. Now, some of the soldiers that had gone through basic training and the infantry school down at Fort Benning in the other companies are now joining the headquarters, headquarters company. All these years later, still don't know why there's two headquarters, but that's what it was called, headquarters, headquarters company. And as part of that group, we had the scout platoon, and they were simply the top dogs. I mean, there were a lot of ranger tabs and some special forces guys running that platoon. I remember there was a set of twins. I think they were from West Virginia, whose job it was to ride dirt bikes, you know, motorcycle dirt bikes for a living in Central California all day, just Awesome. Um, Sergeant Epps, Sergeant Bedwell, who would, was the coach of the softball team, uh, the, uh, the HHC Hawks. I've got a very, very bad dark picture of, of the team that I'll try to post. Um, this is a great group of professional soldiers in the, in the uh, scout platoon. I also remember there was, I think, an 81-millimeter heavy mortar platoon. And of course, they had to carry all that stuff with them. Those were big guys. The only name I remember from that platoon was a guy named Sterner, who was straight out of central casting for every war movie you've ever seen. And he could also throw a softball from the outfield fence to home plate on the fly. He was also on the softball team. I, gotta, I know I mentioned this in a previous episode, but when we were in garrison, you know, intramural sports with that many guys, a lot of whom had been very, very good high school athletes, those, those sports were very, very competitive, flag football, softball, basketball, and, and some other things. Well, after in-processing in January, again, the companies were being formed, doing a lot of platoon training, a lot of squad training, uh, and of course, you know, PT, 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 getting into the routine. Well, there was the light fighters course in Feb in, in the backyard. The first, the first deployment was the backyard. If you're listening to this and you don't know what I mean by that, I'm not talking about your backyard at home. I'm talking about lots and lots of room, hundreds of acres um, in behind Fort Ord that was used for squad and platoon and company-sized training. And, and I got to tell you, it's just sort of off topic. That was my favorite kind of field problem. Now, going out to the backyard for three or four days, I loved those little deployments. You could take all the food you wanted. I don't think I ever ate an MRE in the backyard, but we're going to talk about that on an upcoming episode called In the Field. Well, 
Finally, in February of 1987, we make our first trip to Fort Hunter Liggett. Yes, had a lot of nicknames, Hungry Lizard, all kinds of things. And this is where I really get to know. I've learned the routine in Garrison. It is this first field problem, the Fort Hunter Liggett, where I really get to know the guys in Alpha Company, especially in 2nd Platoon. I was the medic for 2nd Platoon, and what training was going to be like in the Army, that this is what the gig was all about, practicing to get from one position to another to do what needed to be done. And I got to say, that field problem in February of 87, even though it was a time of getting to know one another and figuring things out, I think that's probably why I remember it as the easiest field problem we ever did. Later that year alone in 1987, we still have another trip to Fort Hunter Liggett in May. Then it's Panama. We're doing a whole show on the Panama deployments. 29 Palms down to the Joshua Tree, down there in the middle of the desert where the Marines were the op for. And, of course, those of us in um, Alpha Company will close out the year in the deployments of deployments, Her Majesty's Australia. And, yes, we'll be doing a whole show on that. And for those of you guys that were in Alpha Company, I hope you'll listen. So many great stories about that deployment. Well, anyway... You've now met the guys, the new battalion. I'm saying new battalion because I found that some people don't understand what I'm saying, cohort. My mom was like, what do you keep saying, cohort? Uh, so I'm just going to call it the new battalion. You cohort guys knew, know who you are, and so I'll refer to it as the new battalion. So we've, I'm getting to know the new battalion, the new guys, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, headquarters company. And so now that you know the guys, if you're listening as a friend or a family member, I want to talk a bit about the gear. I've got this podcast separated into two parts and we're exactly at 10 minutes. Yes, yes, Doc makes it look very easy. Anyway, talking about the gear. First of all, my, my first memory was that all of the gear was getting better. As I said in the first episode, the 7th ID was getting all the latest upgraded weapons and equipment. It's just a great, great time to be in the Army, especially there at Fort Ord. Now, we all wore the same basic woodland-patterned BDUs, battle dress uniform, combat boots, and the Kevlar helmet. Now, the 7th Infantry Division was a bit unique in that we wore what was called a mop top. It was kind of hard to describe. It was like a, a bushy cloth-looking thing that we wore on our Kevlars that broke up our outline. It made a better tactical outline or no outline, which is the point, in the green jungle environments or at night, especially in Central America, um, which is really the area. That really was our AO, our area of operation. We were being designed to fight these low to mid-intensity conflicts in Central America, which is why Panama is the only place we go overseas twice during, during our first, during this tour in the Army. Now, I don't know if we had them on our first field problem, but we would all eventually wear sort of that new type of web gear. It had more of the pockets. Um, the Gore-Tex jacket replaced that insanely heavy wool winter jacket that had the liner that you could put on the inside. It kept you, it all kept you very warm, but the Gore-Tex kept you just as warm as that heavy winter jacket, but it also kept you dry. And we also would get these new sleeping bags um, that were a lot lighter than 
the old, you know, big green sleeping bags that we had had in basic training that I had had at Fort Benning, Georgia, and realized I never, ever wanted to carry in the field again. The, 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 the old sleeping bags were not only very heavy, but let them get wet, and it's like adding 50 pounds to your already very, very heavy load. And, uh, and the green rucksack, the, the green rucksack that you've seen in all the Vietnam movies, most of us had that. We get a new one, um, I think, towards the end of the tour, but I think I always carried I always preferred that green rucksack because my medical kit being kind of rectangular in shape sat perfectly on top of that and I needed to have easy access to that if we were moving or when we were we were stopping and so um, the, the old green rucksack was always my favorite um, I'm going to talk about food on an upcoming episode what we ate when we were out in the field on an upcoming episode I want to focus on the gear and most of all the important gear the most important gear carried by an American light infantry soldier in the late 1980s and that was his weapon the most important gear of all um what he had the most important gear was his weapon yes i know that's what she said uh, what all of you civilians call the gun all right let me start with myself as the combat medic and there's one to every platoon um i started with the old-fashioned sidearm the world war ii era 45 caliber, you've all seen it, you know, the, the old-fashioned 45 caliber, in fact, the one I had when I first got to Fort Ord may, wear, may well have seen action in World War II. I don't know, but I swear on the range you could actually see the bullet flying out of the barrel on those old 45s. Um, it, but it fired a honking, human-stopping slug of a round. But by 1987, in that first field problem, we have upgraded to the Beretta 9mm, an American medic from Texas carrying an Italian handgun, and I loved, I loved the Beretta. Um, I also preferred to carry an old M16A1. The M16A2 is becoming more prevalent, and so there was always a few M16s down in the armory and um, in the basements of the buildings. And the armorer, as all of you know, was always happy to check out weapons. He didn't really ask all that many questions when you asked for a weapon. He assumed you were going to the range or something like that. So I did like to carry a rifle with me on deployments because, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to appear to be carrying less than the guys, even though, as you're about to hear, typically I was carrying less weight than a lot of the guys. The guys. But we're going to talk about that on a, on a future episode as well. But for the 11 Bravo the backbone of the 7th Infantry Division, the brigade, the battalion, the company, the platoon, and the squad, the everyday weapon was the M16. Some of the guys had the M203 grenade launcher at the bottom. If, if you're a civilian, just think Scarface, say hello to my little friend. You know, Scarface and a few guys in the platoon carried the, uh, the M203. And then, of course, a few guys in the platoon also carried the venerable, amazing, insanely deadly M249 squad assault weapon. Everybody called it the SAW. This weapon was the answer to a lot of issues raised about the stopping power of the M16 in the 5.56 round. Now, the saw also fired a 5.56 round, but you barely pull the trigger, and you're sending half a dozen rounds downrange, traveling so fast that if it were not for gravity and topography, they would travel one mile in one second. Just think about that. M249 saw absolutely loved it. Now, of course, then there was the beast. 
the pig, the hog, the M60 machine gun that you've seen in every Vietnam War movie, and of course at the end of Rambo First Blood. This weapon fires a thorax-crushing, head-removing, 7.62 round at a voracious 200 rounds per minute, and more if you can change the barrel fast enough. And oh, by the way, someone has to carry that extra barrel and the tripod and the cleaning kit and the 100-round belts of ammo that weigh about six pounds apiece. I was thinking of you guys, the M60 team, the gunner and the assistant gunner, it was you guys that I was thinking about on the very first episode when I said the term light infantry is one of the biggest, most ironic misnomers in the history of the spoken word. On the last episode, I talked about my time at Fort Benning in November, December of 1986 while attending the Light Leaders course. Well, I had been invited to fire the M60. It was not on the tripod, but it was on the bipod, you know, the little legs that folded down. Well, I got down in the prone position with all the guys cheering me on. Hey, Doc's going to fire the pig, you know. The range guy was from Fort Benning. He was beside me with a 100-round belt for me to shoot. I had on my soft cover. I turned it backwards so I could see. I had to ask the guy where the safety was, and then it was time to shoot. I had never fired it before. I had never even fired the M60 in basic training, and these were live rounds. And, and I'm not sure if the M60 has ever been on the grounds of Fort Sam Houston where I took my advanced individual training. Well, back to Fort Benning, I, I'm looking through that, that weird vertical rectangular sight on the back and trying to line it up with the front sight. I remember the training we had. Uh, it said, you know, like when you fired the saw, if you say three to five round burst, three to five round burst while you're pulling the trigger, that was the best way to shoot it so that you weren't shooting rounds all over the place or the rounds would obviously rise up with the recoil. And so I decided to do the same thing with the M60. I'm just going to say three to five round burst while I'm pulling the trigger. And, and I remember it had like one of those little metal things that you could lay on, on your shoulder to help steady it. Well, I don't care how many times uh, you fired old grandpa scratch and sniff's famous shotgun or hunting rifle. This was not like that. Not even close. I fire off my first burst of the M60. The recoil knocks off my hat. I am deaf, mostly blind, and look over and realize I still have more than 90 rounds to go. To you guys who humped the M60 and all of its parts and all of that ammo and learn to fire it well and accurately, this episode is dedicated to you. And of course, I don't want to forget, we also had a 60 millimeter mortar platoon. Those guys had to carry a lot of stuff too, the tube and the base plate and the aiming stakes and all the rounds. Look, the guys in the gears, the guys in the gear, Great guys and great gear, oh, but man, the last piece of gear I want to talk about was the single most metaphorical thing that I saw at Ford Ward that told me we were winning the Cold War. In the same month that Kenny Woods and all of y'all were at Fort Benning in September starting basic training, a nondescript 18-wheeler flatbed truck pulled up to the curb in front of the battalion headquarters. When they pulled off the tarp, Young men like me, who grew up talking about, dreaming about, racing, and loving cars, 
saw a vehicle like nothing we had ever seen before. It was low, had huge oversized wheels, a flat windshield, and no doors. It was the Humvee. While I said the light infantry in the first episode did not have vehicles, that's mostly true. The companies did not have vehicles, but the headquarters company did. Uh, we didn't have big armored personnel carriers or tanks or things like that or the big two-and-a-half-ton trucks that everyone called a deuce-and-a-half. But our headquarters headquarters company had several Humvees for command, and the medical platoon had some Humvees for those lazy, non-grunt medics who worked at the battalion aid station and slept on the cots. They had a couple of those Humvees ambulance, but that was it. On large deployments, we chartered buses or the transportation company came and got us and took us to where we needed to start. But when I saw the Humvee, I knew the good guys were winning the Cold War, that great old American ingenuity. And on my 40th birthday, many years back in 2007, I bought a gorgeous Boulder Gray Hummer H3 because on that day I saw it. I told the guys, I'm going to buy one someday. And they were like, you can't buy a Humvee. I was like, well, people buy Jeeps. And those used to be just in the army. Well, the new battalion is here. They've arrived. Now we're all together at Fort Ord up on Infantry Hill. Coming up on future episodes, we're going to do one about being in the field, what we ate, how we traveled, the weekends when we were in Garrison, the clubs in San Jose and San Francisco, our time in the desert, down under in Australia, and of course, Panama. So good we had to do it again. Yes, that's what she said. And the final episode coming up on Veterans Day 2021, all coming up on Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War. So until next time, no slack, cold steel. Bushmasters and Night Fighters, Boar Brother Boar.